Hello, everyone. You've reached the 11th episode of Changing Reels, the podcast hosted on the Modern Superior Network, focusing on movies that are a little underappreciated, even if respected, with a focus on diversity in front of and behind the camera. For the 11th time, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And this week, we're going to be continuing our animation showcase, One Two Punch, with a trio of exceptionally cheery movies, he said says tongue wedged firmly into his front mouth, but they're not without their positives and, of course, maybe some negatives. We'll discuss that as time goes on. If you want to reach us, of course, you can hit us up here at the Modern Superior website, and we'll also be including links to our Twitter and Gmail in the episode description, as always with links to the short films where applicable, and while we won't run into probably another Cita Sings the Blues case anytime soon, if the full film is applicable, We'll also hit you up with some legal links to that. I am doing okay today. Courtney, how's life been treating you? Um, life's been good. I pretty much spent the last, what, two days just taking in all things American politics and <laughs> protests and stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's a scary but also very fascinating time to be in. So there's plenty of good articles to read and, you know, a lot of head shaking over the last few days, but it's been good. That's fair. I, I suppose head shaking is better than uncontrollable weeping or anything to that effect. And uh, I do not speak for Modern Superior, nor do I speak for the podcast as a whole, and nor do I speak for my always awesome companion, Mr. Small. But I, Andrew Hathaway of this podcast, am 100% pro-Nazi punching. So if you have been paying attention to politics, that's a tidbit for you. You know, it was one of those, as I was saying before, when we were just kind of chatting off screen, it's one of those things where morally I know it was wrong, but I'm not going to lie, I did have a little smile on my face when I saw that footage. But it's the state of the world right now. Violence is never the answer, but when you're confronting hate like that and considering the people that were getting punched at Trump rallies, I'm going to let this one slide for a bit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to punch a dude smiling and waving his way out of an auditorium. It's another thing entirely to punch a Nazi who was calling for the extermination of black people not too long ago. And on the uh, the subject of tolerating intolerance, I'm just going to give a very brief reading of Mr. Karl Popper, The Open Society and Its Enemies. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. We should claim that any movement preaching intolerance places itself outside the law, and we should consider incitement to intolerance and persecution as criminal, in the same way as we should consider incitement to murder or to kidnap or to the revival of the slave trade as criminal. And on that extremely uplifting pro-Nazi punching note, quote, saying area, which is my rambling expertise sometimes, Courtney, we have short films. You have one. It's animated. What do you got? Uh, it's animated. It's not really political, but I thought it ties in with our feature film discussion really nicely. Um, the film that I picked this week is called Tsunami, and it was made by a Danish filmmaker, Sophie Camp- Campmark. And it's an interesting tale that follows this man, Haru, who returns home after a tsunami has basically devastated the land. And as he's trying to just take in the destruction, he discovers that there is this giant magical fish-like creature that is kind of is stuck in his house and he has to figure out what to do and how to get that fish out of his house and through the process 
I guess it helps him to, I guess, reconcile with the devastation and find the humanity in nature, even within amidst all that destruction. And as I said, when we get to our feature film, The Red Turtle, I, I thought it was a nice segue to it. When I was watching, I was picturing if I was to plan a film festival and I was going to show The Red Turtle, what short would I think best suited it in front of it? And this is the, the first one that came to mind. See, that's interesting. I was going to ask you if you had, uh, like, picked this one before you'd watched The Red Turtle or afterwards, but it sounds like you picked Tsunami after you watched The Red Turtle. Yes, I, I saw The Red Turtle at TIFF last year. Since then, it was probably my third time seeing it, so a lot of the themes just kind of jumped out at me when I was watching Tsunami. Okay, because for me, it was a little weird watching Tsunami almost immediately following the red turtle because the broad outlines were so similar. I mean, they're both dealing with water-based devastation, though I, I guess if you twist it, my short pick, which we'll get to, also has a deal of water devastation mixed in. One of the things I found interesting about all of our picks today was kind of the indifference of nature. Tsunami, I think, is the most lighthearted of our three agree slash disagree you know, that's funny because i would say the red turtle despite all that happens is probably the most i walked away from that probably feeling the most uplifted uh, interesting I put tsunami second uplift i could definitely see that with the red turtle i think um for me it was more like the construction of tsunami lended itself to jokes whereas uh, the feature film and then my pick they weren't funny i think there was one point in the red turtle that i chuckled and i feel like i chuckled accidentally (laughs) Um, but with tsunami you had this bizarre odd couple situation i loved how the man was treating his home normally like his home still with respect even though it had been devastated there were the nice little touches like how he even though the water is up above his ankles, how he took off his rain boots to put on his slippers when he went inside. And just a very nice, tiny positive touch about how even though the home is devastated, there's light coming through. And like as a habit, he flicks on the light switch. No electric lights come on, but he still walks into the light. And then as he's just trying to go about his day, Hearing that in the background every so often made me chuckle, especially when he was trying to give food to the poor gigantic fish that couldn't make sense of its surroundings because it's a giant magical fish in a destroyed home. Those tiny little touches that made it, I think, maybe more palatable is going to be the best way of putting it. Like There was a charm to it that, while the red turtle definitely had, it was deployed more, it looked like, four intended chuckles, like the man trying to deal with the magical fish before it segued into inky water, nightmare slash dreamland. I can see that. I would argue, though, that for the Red Turtle, the comic relief, I guess, comes in the form of the crabs. Because I mean, this film, Tsunami also has a lot of crabs in the film, but they don't really serve much of a purpose outside of outlining that the giant fish is there. But in the Red Turtle, the crabs, I found, were almost like the comedic sidekicks that you would expect from a, from a Disney film, where they just offered nice little subtle moments of humor um, as, as the tale was going on. Okay, we'll definitely talk more about that because I looked up at the crabs way differently than 
uh, than you did with the red turtle. That was, I guess that kind of comes up to my issue just because I had watched this so closely with the red turtle. It was nice seeing the different approaches, both in animation style, because in tsunami, it's this really muted kind of blend. Like it was scribbled out on some very fine paper where the colors kind of run in with each other and then are less finely separated as they are in uh, the Red Turtle. But the humor in Tsunami made it, I think melancholy is going to be just the recurring emotion because man's reward for helping the fish get back to the ocean and helping the fish stay alive is its own reward it's just whatever satisfaction and i admire sophie's decision to not show our man's reaction after he has released the fish into the sea because you know in most fairy tales or even most stories with a bit of magical realism in them as this definitely does have we're typically greeted with a wish or some kind of obvious monetary reward but i like how it's a good parallel as the fish's return to life is a return to some kind of normalcy for it and then our man him trying to go through his day as though nothing is devastated and that his surroundings are okay is its own don quixote-esque like delusional but not to the point of it being disruptive or negative. So there was just a nice parallel there between the man's efforts to continue to, you know, live his life in otherwise terrible surroundings and then the fish being magical, being returned to its own normalcy. And I like that we only get a brief glimpse of, I guess, the man's past or those who were part of his past. And the fact that, as you said, we don't see much after it's released. The film pretty much ends after the fish is freed. And I like that in an odd way, they kind of help each other through this. And similar to our feature film, there's, there's no dialogue in this film. So, you know, you're watching Tsunami and it's really up to audience interpretation and a lot of the feelings and emotions that are presented. But yet I thought Sophie did a wonderful job of conveying that emotion and not in a heavy handed way, but it's just one of those where you, you get the story at the end of it. You feel that at least for the man, he's going to be able to survive. His life will go on. Yeah. And there were some nice stylistic touches there too, which helped that, especially when we were basically disappearing into the man's memory or what we're thinking is his memory there was one section of the hallway which was having one of those crazy dolly zoom jaws-esque shots applied to it while the rest of it stayed relatively static which was really disorienting for me when we were kind of going into the man's past again it kind of goes back to the color palette you know he his struggle, he identifies his struggle in with the fishes and wanting to return to some kind of normalcy as we see what we're going to assume is him as a kid with his mother or some kind of memory of a happier family life. And that very brief nightmarish descent is what gives him the strength to push that big old fish back to the sea. So there's a lot to admire in that. And while the disorientation and such is very briefly deployed, it's done in a way that really helps us sink in with him. And yeah, this I, I wasn't sold on this being a, a good companion to the Red Turtle at first just because of how similar they were, but the differences make them a strong coupling. 
And speaking of disorientation, I definitely <laughs> want to talk about your selection because, yeah, that one threw me for a loop. And normally I, I tend to watch your selections, you know, at least a few days in advance. But this time, just due to life, I only watched like about an hour or so before recording. And oh, sweet. I had to watch it like again to, to replay and just go, wait, what, what did I just watch? So I don't know if you want to dive into to your pick. Well, there's a broad connection. I think that all three of our selections here today have something to do with the indifference of nature and how I believe my pick, which is There Will Come Soft Rains, 1987 animated film directed by and oh boy, this is going to be a fun one. Nazim Tuliakadavez, Tuliakadzevez. Viv. I think that's I, close enough. Close enough. <laughs> and uh, apologies there. I'm I'm good with Polish pronunciations, but when it comes to Soviet state or Russian pronunciations, not so much. But it's based on a Ray Bradbury short story of a house that's automated that is continuing on its automated life as its inhabitants, as we solely found out, have been turned to dust. It's a short that's stuck with me as the animation style is rough. It's present, but it's rough. With your short, Tsunami, I I loved how the colors kind of blended together and the animation style to bring a connection between the fish and the man. In There Will Come Soft Rains, it it almost looks like paper mache cutouts thrust onto the screen at points. And the disruptive influence comes from the only spark of life we actually see in There Will Come Soft Rains, which is this dove that looks like it was animated at roughly one frame every other second just to counteract the smooth doll-like nature of the robotics present in the home. When we talk about, or at least when I was talking about the indifference of nature, it's blatantly spelled out at the end that if we woke up tomorrow and we were all gone, nature would go about its merry way. But the disorienting way that everything bleeds together in this take on there will come soft rains preparing us to be surprised when that bird comes flopping in. I, I, it's almost too inaccurate to say it's flying in. It makes for an unusually disquieting experience. And I'm happy in a very weird way that you were disoriented by it. So if you want to go on on that, be my guest. I don't know if I really saw it as the indifference of nature. If anything, I I saw it as nature breaking through the sterile. Um, uh, It reminded me a lot of, even though it's a a Russian short film, it reminded me a lot of the Japanese animated works of the early 80s. And just because of like the hard, distinct lines of the robot and even how it envisions the future and the the pod-like beds that I guess the humans at one point were living in. But everything is so cold and mechanical in that house and it's only and i found that nature was always on the edges trying to break through and for me when that bird comes through that is nature trying to disrupt this mechanical order and i guess ultimately send the robot mad but the short also in a weird way reminded me of like a bleaker version of wally and i don't know that might be like a far (laughs) far far-reaching thing but in wally you have a robot that is 
in a desolate landscape that is continuing to work. So at the at the beginning, that's I was mentioning him as in comparison to the robot in Wally, but also in Wally you have that evil robot that doesn't want mankind to know that there is life outside, that nature still exists despite all of mankind's destruction. And when nature comes into this household, you see the robot flip and try to do everything in its power to maintain that kind of sterile order. So that's where my mind kind of drifted to Wally. So I wasn't sure if watching this film, if I am if I was supposed to feel for the robot or just kind of observe the robot going through the motions. And then I think with the whole cold environment, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to take away from this particular short. Well, I'm glad that you brought up Wally, which spiritually, yeah, they're similar. I mean, in tone and execution, they are worlds apart, but overall, yeah, they're good cousins to each other. For me, like with the identification of the robot, it was pity, and I don't pity things very often, but the whole short seems to be gearing itself toward presenting how mankind engineered its own destruction, but that destruction could have easily come in the form of nature indifferently asserting itself. And that's why the little conflict between the robot and the bird when it senses that there's life where it shouldn't be, or I should be more specific, there is life, but it's the wrong kind of life. Like the robot is programmed to recognize in that bleak monotone. And I think it's also kind of funny that of the shorts that we picked this week, mine had the most dialogue, was extremely unsettling in the context, and then the way that the robot's voice is coldly greeting people. In this case, the bit of nature that gets in ends up imploding what we can maybe assume is one of the last testaments to man this bunker with these empty suits and these ashes where people once were and that tiny bit of nature asserting itself leads that poor robot to destroy itself like there's that moment where you know man-made artifices the cross with jesus that is so easily discarded the robot stabs through it but it wipes itself clean of that so quickly which again nature could easily wipe out all of our religious adherence in one fell swoop which may be the goal for some folks but we won't wait in too far there and then just how pathetically that tiny assertion of nature ends up destroying everything because the robot is without eyes when it tries to bang into the bird its eyes are basically bleeding like they're socketed and it could have been like a robot version of game of thrones or something like that yeah i thought that was really powerful and disturbing imagery when you're seeing like the i guess the innards come out almost as if he was eyes were bleeding blood the decision of the robot to then to destroy itself it's all in response to a tiny bit of nature asserting itself in the environment. So that was one of the ways that I was taking it to mean like the indifference of nature as the bird is just doing what the bird's going to do. Bird's going to look for food. That's not too actually far off from uh, how I looked at the crabs and the red turtle, but here it just exists. The bird is a bird and the robot destroys what existence it has left in order to get to it so much like with tsunami how nature asserts itself and may bring some kind of catharsis from the destruction here nature asserts itself and it destroys one of the lingering remnants of human architecture that 
it looks to be left on this world. Both of these films, with how they use nature, is very fitting for the Red Turtle. As you know, as much as each of the three films are very distinct in their own design, construction, and look, the way they each use nature was very fascinating. Yeah, and I think that's as good a point as any to go ahead and segue into the Red Turtle. So we are going to take a very quick break, and then after we've changed a reel, we will be back to discuss the Red Turtle. I was going to try and say Tortier Rouge there, but, you know, why mess with a good formula? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, back in a moment, folks. And welcome back, everybody. We are going to hit up our animated film for our animation showcase this month. And this one is special. It is The Red Turtle and is directed by Michael Dudok DeWitt, which is a mess of international influences. Michael himself is a Dutch-British animator. Studio Ghibli had a hand in its production, and you can see tons of influences uh, ranging from Tintin to Ghibli in The Red Turtle. But before I go into the substance, or I guess backbone of the style, the movie centers around a man who after a calamity is left without other human contact and when we meet him is drifting along the ocean struggling to survive he washes up on an island and at that point he decides that he is going to live he is going to find out some way of fighting for his life so the film follows in a castaway-esque fashion his struggles before taking a wonderful magical shift which puts things in much different perspective courtney this was your pick why was the red turtle the sea creature you decided to focus on Several reasons. The first is, I saw this at TIFF, I guess, in September. Michael Duduk DeWitt was there to do the intro and Q&A, and he was talking about how Studio Ghibli had approached him about making a film, because at that point, he had a couple of short films, one of which, Fathers and Daughters, won Academy Award for Best Animated Short back in 2001, I believe. They wanted to work with him because Studio Ghibli was looking to branch out and do more of an international production, so through a series of events, he came up with this idea. Studio Ghibli loved it, and I guess with Wild Bunch in France, I believe they all came together and created this film. But one of the also one of the reasons I want to discuss it is because on this show we normally look back at cinema and find films and discuss films that are available online or you know streaming, you can get on DVD, what have you. And I think this is the first film that we've done where it actually is being released in theaters this week. So if you're listening to this in the States, um, The Red Turtle just got released this past weekend. And in Canada, by the time this goes up, it will be released, I believe, tomorrow. So I figured, you know, it'd be nice to, once in a while, dive into films that are extremely current, but still offer a lot to say. Considering the allusions earlier we made to Wally, and now some of the knowledge that I have of Studio Ghibli actually approaching DeWitt for the Red Turtle, that makes it extremely fascinating as to how the movie ended up being constructed, because it is constructed largely without dialogue. I think most that we get is a uh, hey. And then also some anguished screaming at times. Much like with Cita Sings the Blues, 
last week, but I think the Red Turtle takes it a step further and just removes all language as a mitigating factor. A grunting or a scream or hey is universal language, and I, I doubt anyone would take the hey in this to mean the hey which you feed cows or horses. But in this case, the Ghibli stamp at the beginning actually prepped me for a different movie than we got and if ghibli reached out to dewitt i say extremely good on them because this is nowhere near their typical style this is fanciful sure but it's so sparse while the animation isn't lacking in detail i was surprised at how often it was flat in the sense that actions occurred from right to left, left to right, forward to back, and there was very little depth actually in the images, but that works to the Red Turtle's tremendous advantage, especially when we are faced with the hopelessness of the man's situation to start off with. As his head pops out from the sea, it occurs after opening credits that are done in total silence, much different than what we're used to from just about any animated movie. And that despair, that wall of sea as his head comes popping in. I mean, that's almost textbook Bergman that had through a glass darkly, these figures emerging as dark from the light of the sea. And here that desperation is no less palpable and that's continued on when the man gets to the island there was one shot i was really impressed by specifically because it had no real depth and that was the man standing in his surroundings and just being faced with a wall of grass we know through the logic of the man's movements afterwards that it's a hill or somewhere that he can walk across but after seeing the wall of sea to the wall of grass that despair hit so hard and the limited but intentionally so animation and background design choices those were refreshing for the world that is usually so alive with magic or infinite possibility the animation in this um, i guess similar to last week with see the singles of blues it's deceptively simple as you said a lot of the surfaces and dimensions are flat even the way with a lot of the hand-drawn animation and also leak color palette at times you don't think of like how intricate and how detailed it really is at the same time once you start to absorb yourself in it there is so much going on and there's so much detail in this film it, it's fascinating just how he makes it look simple and effortless but it was really hard to pull off and one thing i'll point our listeners to is on Cinema Axis, Derek Jacobs, who's a really great writer, had an interview with Michael Duduk DeWitt. And in that, he, he talks a lot about the different types of animation that they had to do in terms of hand-drawn for the turtle. I guess they used 3D animation. And also for some of the watercolor imagery, they actually used charcoal to create that effect. So anyway, we'll put the interview in the show notes because I think it's, it's really great. It's a lengthy one, but it's very in-depth. But one thing that really struck me about this film, and as we've talked about with the previous shorts was the impact of nature because when the film opens we see the man in this the violent sea getting thrown onto this island and as much as he tries to get off either the water or the turtle keeps him there and then there comes a point when the film takes a very interesting shift and you start to see man and nature become harmonious to a certain extent then you get that flood that comes and ravishes the land again so it's that kind of push and pull of nature that i just found really fascinating and it added a unique layer to the storytelling 
the push and pull nature works well too, just thematically with all the water that we're seeing, tides coming in, tides coming out. That's one of the reasons that I was focusing on the indifference of nature earlier. It's not to say that that can't come with beauty. In The Red Turtle, that beauty is sublime. It's a smothering beauty. And your comments there, and I'm definitely going to have to check out that interview now, about the detail in the background. Once we realize what kind of movie it's going to be, and when you talk about those techniques, like how finely animated even something like the sand is, and the shadows as they're draped over the sand, and the insertion of brief fantasy elements is usually immediately counteracted by a large dose of reality. And I think that even applies to the overall plot change that happens in the Red Turtle, because the man initially fights the turtle. He struggles with the turtle as the turtle breaks his raft and keeps pushing the man back, keeping in with the tidal push, I'm sorry, the tidal as in water or that amazing Fiona Apple album, the push pull of the man with the island and the overall plot. It ends on a note of loving indifference because there is that moment. And this is going to be the official spoiler warning. So spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. If you haven't watched this, go watch it. It's amazing. If you don't want to be spoiled, pause, find a theater, buy your ticket, come back, press play. That's my lengthy spoiler note. But when the man resists fighting and he dreams of the red turtle as this spirit, and then it cracks open and it basically hatches a woman for him to have a life with, as comforting as those moments are, and he actually gets to feel touch and accepts what weird gift nature has given him. You know, once he dies and she mourns, she returns to the sea. She becomes a turtle, just another part of nature. And as loving as that relationship is, it goes back to the indifference. You know, nature washed this man ashore, kept him there, provided him some happiness, but it also washed back once it was done with him. And it also fits perfectly in with the cycle of life, like similar to nature having its cycle. We get to see not only the man fall for this woman, but them building a life on this island as as best as they can, starting a family, and then that point in life where the next generation must now forge out on their own journey and hopefully find their own island to inhabit. It's in-depth look at the human experience done through quiet animation. We don't often see that. Like it's, You could look at the Red Turtle and say, oh, it's just a very simple tale telling us something that we already know, but it's how it's done that I think really stuck with me. And it's one of those films that I've seen it three times now, and the more I see it, the more I fall in love with it. Appreciate it the first time, then the second time I start noticing more details, and then the third time I'm like, no, this is a really great film in its subtlety. The comparison I would make when we want to talk about simplicity, and this kind of goes back to the Ghibli influence, is that this is a very different but still humanist take on the same kind of struggle that The Grave of the Fireflies is, which is 
as depressing yet resilient a movie as can be and is also deals with the necessity and violence of survival you know sometimes the choices that we have to make on that note of violence and survival i loved how the full switch from realism to the sort of magical realistic world of the woman tortoise happened as a result of the man's despair over an act of destruction versus an act of creation because his creative acts be it trying to build the raft, gather food, make shelter, those moments, they're greeted by nature smacking him back or his own subconscious punishing him for daring dream of escape. So I was really happy that when the red turtle comes and hatches into that woman that they didn't pull back to say, oh, this part's another illusion or, oh, this part's another aspect of nature just toying with him because previously you know the man seems to be losing his mind and the turtle woman could seem to be just another aspect of that but that's where the push-pull of nature comes in psychologically speaking yes this man may have doomed himself mentally and we get instances of that with the string five piece that plays all of a sudden and then disappears and the bridge he thinks is going to save him and then he starts flying realize oh it's another dream i like that they defied that expectation that those moments that are dreams or that could be the man losing his mind are not the case this is actually just magically real nature working its wonders when the woman hatches yeah, and I like that there's that feel that no matter what you do, you can't escape nature or at least the path that nature has, I guess, put us all on that we just don't realize. And there's that great moment in terms of, I guess, a, a teachable moment. When he first gets to the island, he falls down that crevice and can't find his way back up because he's thrown in the water. So he has to kind of squeeze his way through this canal, almost like yeah. the, the island is kind of giving birth to the new facet of him. And when his child is born, the same thing occurs. We see the child fall down, and he's about to dive in and try and save it, but the woman stops him and says, no, no, this is let the child, the child must figure out on his own how it is done. And you see the child, you know, the little baby swimming through the canal a little easier because he can fit better, but still gets there. Well, and also then, breathe underwater, it seems. Yeah, well, and then he, but he also, once he breathes underwater, he connects. This first thing he does is he connects with that tur the, the turtle. He sees a turtle there, and it's almost like this child, I guess, being the hybrid of the man and the woman who was once a turtle has now <laughs> got a certain spiritual, if I could use that word, understanding of life at an early age. And I thought those was just a really nice way to hit some of the, the points that we see occurring throughout the film. And it's a soft way of going back to the indifference of nature that I've been thinking about with all three of our picks this week. First of all, I think we need to hone in on that ravine scene where it's filled with water because, yes, there are two of them. And that's one of the moments where the seemingly minimalistic animation horrified me. The man, he can't breathe underwater. And once he realizes there is no hope of escaping, we're set up in a couple of quick shots as he initially goes underwater to try and see his surroundings. And that horizontal plane with that one teeny tiny tunnel in the bottom left that goes off into darkness. We know that the man's struggling. We see him moving against the stone that will not be clenched. So I, I was feeling 
anxiety build the moment that I saw that teeny tiny tunnel in the corner. It really makes use of great space and darkness that don't necessarily have to be animated, but the man is taking a risk, and it's almost existential in a way. Do you choose to fight? Do you choose to just give up? And his choice to go into the darkness was rewarded, but this was the kind of movie that was so indifferent to this man's survival that I thought, honestly, he could have died at that point, and then we would pick up some other way. Like, the turtle may have come to mourn him. That's one of those moments that the the minimal animation style hits your gut, it hits your heart. It's just a great use of space and darkness. For me, I remember seeing it on the big screen in the theater during TIFF where I was really tensing up and holding my breath because at that point, I didn't really know what to expect from this film. To be honest, I did very little pre-TIFF research about this film. I just saw Studio Ghibli, Man, Island, Turtle, and I was like, all right, check. Sign (laughs) sign me up for a ticket. A little secret about some of my TIFF selection. There's a few times where I'll go in-depth and read about on a film, oh, this sounds good, and there's usually about four or five that a random detail or a particular image, I'm like, all right, let me just go in blind. So I didn't even know that it was dialogue-free going in. And then seeing that sequence where he's going through that little tunnel and it's getting shorter and shorter and there's no sound and all you're just you're watching this man struggle and your mind you're thinking this guy's gonna die it was a tense moment and it's funny because later on in the film when the child is growing up and it's starting to get the craving to leave the nest there's a scene where he's walking around the island and he jumps over that tunnel now that the same tunnel that his father fell down and that he fell down earlier you now see that he's reached that point where he's grown he's ready to advance it's almost like a a passage of right to have to go through that horrific experience and come out a better person well yeah a lot of the movie is about the uncertainty of parenting because obviously you had the birth metaphor of him going through the the man i should say not their son of him squeezing his way through the ravine without dialogue just the the lessons of the parents learning to let their kid go let their kid face danger and to actually see the rewards of that parenting to see the kid be brave to go into the ocean that as many times now tried to to kill his father but then also to realize his future actually lay in that ocean it speaks to a parent's concerns about bringing anything into this world and then also teaching it to cope with the unknown and then release it for lack of a better term into the unknown or i suppose let go would actually be a better way of putting it here but i'm admittedly kind of speaking from half of my ass on this because my experience as a parent are with our kittens who are a varying ages so kittens may not be accurate there but what do you think about that courtney as you are of course a parent and not too long ago became a parent yet again you're on to something because i i know you have kittens and i've never quite understood animal lovers but (laughs) no but because like you know there's there's some people that wouldn't necessarily help a fallen person on the street but spend millions to keep their cat and dog alive but at the same time when i start looking at it more as animal lovers in the eyes of just being parents of their own just of a of a different creature you do see a lot of that so what you what you have in this film could apply to your situation or my situation like for me personally yeah it did hit home a lot having two kids and thinking there is going to be a coming time when they leave the nest and part of my fascination with what's been going on in the world this week is like 
you know, I've had two kids yeah, born in the Obama point. era, but they will be too young to really understand what that means or what life is, right? As they grow up, they will be growing up in the Trump era and whoever else comes after forever how long Trump's reign is. So it's just kind of interesting in how a lot of times we end up becoming our parents to a certain extent, but then we also have to learn how to take what they've taught us and move on and Sometimes I look at myself and I'm for just the type of person I am, I sometimes question like, really, I have two kids, you know, I'm, ex- <laughs> I'm expected to, to lead them in the right path when I will easily sit down with my five-year-old and be watching Star Wars with him because he's currently Star Wars obsessed right now. So it's just that weird dichotomy of having to be responsible and guide the future generation and, and know that there's going to be a point where you can't be there to protect them. And then at the same time, winging it to a certain extent. Like a lot of parenting is just trial and error. You try your best to go in with a game plan, but it's almost like you are stuck on an island and you're just coping with whatever nature throws at you. Well, yeah, all of your experiences there, every single one of them, we could point to a scene in The Red Turtle and say, yep, that, that's that part of parenting. And, you know, I, I want to avoid such easy parallels because the struggle is so universal. But it, it seems like one of the movies that's going to hit especially close to home for parents, considering how everything ends up. And to retouch on the crabs, I did not see them as any kind of comic relief here. They were definitely passive observers in a way, but the way that they're introduced and the way that they continue to be utilized in the Red Turtle is more as opportunistic scavengers. And I suppose to kind of fit in with the parenting theme, you know, the things that may be a threat, but you can learn to use them as a tool or as companionship. Because the, the crab's almost always seem to be waiting for the man to either die or for something to kill him so that they can consume him. We get that at the very beginning when the crab approaches the man to try and see if he's alive so that they could eat him. You've got the crabs following him around until he gives them food, and then the crabs seem to collectively realize, okay, we can bother him for food, or we can wait until he is food. Because so many times in the movie, be it with a fish, we see that at one point, or in a side shots and there's this great insert of the crab initially getting a fish and trying to drag it into its hole and then a fly landing on the fish trying to get some of the fish giving up and then that fly going straight into a spider's web so while the crabs were definitely amusing they were part of that indifferent cycle of nature you know either waiting for something to die waiting for it to give it food or take advantage of some of the opportunities like the dead fish you see i liked the term opportunistic scavengers because they definitely are that but in my screening they provided some of the the biggest laughs and partly because yes they're just there with their own interests in mind but they're still charming enough that even when he's throwing them food they're fighting over it but when he knocks out the turtle and then he feels remorse and he starts trying to build a shelter so that the turtle doesn't get roasted in the sun the crabs are there with their little pieces of grass trying to help as well they really do become a part of the family 
throughout and almost documentarians of everything that the family goes through but especially how the approach at the beginning and when he's fighting nature and you have them trying to get their own and caring about nothing else they did provide a lot of laughs in my screening and i, I still look at them as, as light-hearted comic relief because i mean when they need to be caring and enduring they, they are i think that's where the animated interplay between them and the man is important because he doesn't tame nature exactly you know the crabs are still around and in my mind the little crabs with grass they would just be like okay he keeps giving us food we're gonna help him so he keeps giving us food and if he drops dead we're eating him See, I think by that point, they realize like they're all in this together, and they're not really so much worried about taking advantage of him, but helping him. Because if you think about it, they're there as the sun is born, and the sun grows up as well, right? So, at the very beginning, they were, yeah, definitely out for their own, but as they spend more time with him, and just see how life progresses, they're just there to observe, and I think, help the family as best as they can. See, that's where I wonder where the magic may or may not play as a factor to it because the crabs are one of the constant things other than the landscape that is threatening to destroy the man i mean the crabs are the one constant in the pre-magic post-magic hatching phase of the movie i understand them as comic relief especially when you're faced with so many bleak images or seemingly insurmountable tasks like him getting his raft destroyed yet again or as i mentioned earlier that giant wall of grass that any disruption to that is welcome one of the disruptions that we think may lead to somewhere and for me just fueled more of the nature isn't different aspect was the lone seal who seems to be keeping the man company initially until the man goes out one day to find that the seal has has died when you know there are the crabs ready and waiting but considering the danger that everything else represents in that pre-magic transition yeah the crabs are definitely fun but fun is deployed in a very specific context for me here well, yeah, but I mean, you got to think of the type of film it is. Like The one thing I liked about this film is even though it is not a traditional Studio Ghibli film in terms of look and structure, it's still got a lot of those same themes and levels of mysticism that you expect. Like, I can't think of a off the top of my head of like a Studio Ghibli film that I would just call mindless fun. Even something like Castle in the Sky, I I, I don't know, I feel their films are a little more enriching than what you would get with some of the Disney films, right? Like there's certain films where you could watch certain Disney animated movies and be like, ah, that that was just fun, what have you, but I didn't really take much away from it. Whereas I find whenever I watch Studio Ghibli production, there's always something that draws me in and I'm always a little more fascinated. I don't know if it's just because of the style of animation that is used or the level of mysticism. I can understand you saying that the fun in this is very distinctive but for the type of film it is it kind of has to be on the subject of ghibli i think the only one of theirs that i dislike was tales from Earthsea. but the i mean the comparisons are spiritually important because the red turtle is a lot like if you had werner herzog sit down and watch Studio Ghibli's Ponyo and decide to make a movie based off that because the Red Turtle is so oppressive in its environments that I can imagine Herzog watching it and nodding in silent appreciation of the possible devastation that this nature could wreak havoc on humans. Because even with that magical 
interlude, the man still dies. Nature still does what it does with this man, and he still washes back. And that's another thing, I think, that if Werner Herzog were to watch Ponyo and nod his head along and then say, hey, I wonder how we could make this humanist, but still in nature's indifference, and the result we would get the red turtle. And just saying, that'll do. And in my mind, apparently, Werner Herzog is Scottish. Yeah, that was just a terrible impression. <laughs> <laughs> but your point is taken, though. Your point is taken. It'd be interesting to even hear Herzog do a uh, commentary track on, on this film. As it stands, I, I still think Michael DeDuckdewitt did a fantastic job with this film. And I don't know what's next for him, what other projects he has lined up, but I would love to see another collaboration between him and Studio Ghibli. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see how this film does and how audiences react to it. Hopefully they'll go out in, if not droves, at least reasonable dozens so that they can be influenced here. I I would love to see anything else from him. Like, this was so oppressive, but also warm, and it filled you with that sublime feeling of, I'm going to be crushed by nature, but God, it'll be glorious. Which I still think the crabs represent more than you, but you know. We can have our disagreements on yeah. this show. Oh, definitely. And I would suggest that you and the audience seek out his short film, Father and Daughter, um, the one that he won the Academy Award for. I believe it's available on Vimeo. And it's a really good short film. Again, a little somber in tone, but just really well done. Excellent. And with that note, watch the shorts that we provided, but make sure you watch The Red Turtle if you're one of those people who have completely ignored my spoiler warning and decided to listen to the rest of this. If you're one of the people who's already watched The Red Turtle, give us your thoughts. We can take them either at the Modern Superior website, where we are hosted on our SoundCloud or iTunes pages. The iTunes page especially give us a rating, comment, you like it, you love it, you hate it, you hate to love it, you love to hate it. In any event, it helps us spread the word of these movies a bit more. You can also reach me at Can't Stop Drew on Twitter. You could also email us at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. Courtney, final thoughts and communication methods on your end? Well, listeners can reach me at SmallMind on Twitter, or they can reach us at ChangingReelsAC on Twitter as well. And one thing I would like to say, I know we've only done 11 episodes so far, but I was just doing a quick look at where some of our listeners have been coming from. And I just want to thank the people in Finland, Japan, Norway, Brazil, and Portugal, and Barbados for listening to our <laughs> show. Like it's, you know, sometimes when you do these things, you just kind of picture us and maybe like one other person might be listening you know obviously we get some listeners from the united states but i was not expecting to have listeners from those parts of the globe so if you're in one of those regions or a region that i haven't listed and you want to let me know that you're listening contact us and uh, we'd love to hear from you i'm glad that our audience reflects our mission statement because we want to promote diversity in everything so thank you for listening no matter what part of the globe you're from or what you're doing today i believe that'll do it for us courtney for changing reels i'm andrew hathaway and i'm courtney small thanks for listening this has been a presentation of the modern superior media network 